I came across a, a very provocative line that uh, I have now turned into my uh, signature on my emails, and it has prompted a few interesting conversations. Maybe now you're going to go look for an email from me to see what it is, or I'll tell you what it is. It's simply a question, and it, it asks, what do I see before I look? Um, or what do you see before you look? And it, it's one of those things that you need to let settle in your mind. First of all, what, what is that asking? But I've discovered, actually over the last few months, that thinking about that question has, has changed my orientation in many ways. And I intend through this year, and the reason I left it on my signature of my email was to remind myself that asking this question is going to be very instructive. So today as we talk about this, I, I want uh, that question to kind of keep ringing true. And maybe I'll mention it a few times, and maybe as you go away, you'll also commit it to your own um, meditation or contemplation. It, it is the question again, what do I see before I look? I'll explain a little bit of what it means, because I think it, it, it goes in all kinds of directions for us. But it's very helpful for us today and what we want to think about in the matter of love. So as, as we have looked at the, the ways that love travels, as we've looked at the uh, love in motion of the season of Lent, we thought, first of all, about the love of God, the love that is that vertical expression of love. It, first of all, comes from God to us, and then we return it to God as we adhere to the first part of the Shema, which we spent a bit of time earlier on thinking about and um, considering how important the, the injunction of the Shema Israel, listen Israel, um, they were encouraged to love the Lord their God, that their God was one God and they were to love him. We also thought about the love of self and asked the question, is it okay to love yourself? Or what does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? And you may want to go back and um, listen to that again or think about it one more time. We also thought about the love of one another. And we talked about the love of one another in the in-house sort of way. Uh, not because we do not need to go out of house, but if we're understanding the commandments well, it would seem that loving one another would be the testing ground for our love for the world, our love for our neighbors and our love for the world. And so we thought about how it is that we really show love for one another and simply brought it back to what it's like to love one another as family. When you're family, there are certain ways that you express your love and if we are family, if we are brothers and sisters, as we are often called in the New Testament, then however brothers and sisters would love one another well inside the family, so we should love one another well inside uh, the family of God. We want to go on today and talk about the love of neighbor, which is that love that is horizontal and it goes all around us as well. And I'm, I'm going to remind you of something that I, I think may have been familiar to you through your uh, child-raising years. But, but do you remember a character on television who would take his shoes off and put his slippers on and ask the question of whoever was watching the TV show, 
Won't you be my neighbor? Mr. Rogers was a wildly popular children's broadcaster, and in his Christian faith, he was living out the whole matter of being a neighbor and loving people as neighbors. And the delightful thing was that Mr. Rogers was really looking out and speaking to all the children and asking them, won't you be my neighbor? So we're coming today to think about the question of loving our neighbors and how we are to love our neighbors. And uh, his is a great example. So maybe you'll think of that again uh, as time goes on. The question, won't you be my neighbor? And really inviting someone to be your neighbor. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back to what, what um, Mary has already drawn us to, which is the great story of the Good Samaritan. And I think of all of the timeless stories that there are, the Good Samaritan is one that is very, very familiar, and it has also prompted a lot of thinking and behaving, um, questions, and it, it's a genius story when you see how it is that Jesus sort of packed what would have been a real-life situation into a powerful spiritual message as he was talking to a lawyer who came to talk to him. And we've been here before. We heard Jesus say in Mark chapter 12 is one of the occasions. He said, the second is equally important. So that is after the Shema Israel. Um, after that was sort of the adjunct second commandment that the Jewish people understood to be also of foremost importance. And Jesus echoed that by saying, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And we're, we're, we're wanting that to settle into our minds and hearts. Really, no other commandment is as important as these. So if we are to occupy our minds, occupy our purposes, occupy our intentions with, with something, um, Jesus echoed the Shema Yisrael. He echoed what the Jewish rabbis and, and leaders believed and spoke about, and he moved it all the way over into the expression of his children, his family, in saying through the whole message of his life and then uh, it being echoed by the apostles and everyone who spent time with him that the most important thing to think about is loving God and loving our neighbor. So right after Jesus said that, uh, you'll remember, we've been here a few times, that the lawyer um, wanted to respond in some way or another. We don't know whether the lawyer was trying to trip him up, whether the lawyer was a sincere follower or disciple. Um, at any rate, uh, when the lawyer answered Jesus' question, Jesus' question was, well, how do you read the law? What does it say to you? What, what is the most important commandment? You're asking me, of all the commandments, hundreds that there were, of all of the commandments, which is the most important kind of commandment or which is the most important commandment? What do you think the law tells you? And the lawyer answered and said, well, it's, it's clear. We all know this. It is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said, right, right, Jesus told him. 
Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When we think about all of this, we're drawn into a, a consideration of the whole sort of span of religious life from the beginning of religion in the nation of Israel all the way through to our expression as religious people in the 21st century or whatever century we're in, right? So Israel knew th that they had neighbor responsibilities to the nations. In fact, if we were to go back to Deuteronomy and hear the laws kind of articulated about how Israel was supposed to live, the expectation was that when the nations around saw the kind of religion that Israel had, saw that they had a God who was near them and would hear them and would answer their prayers, the nations would say, what a, what a people is this? And what a God is this who is so near to his people. And the whole hope of the law was that when the children of Israel lived into the covenant of the law, they would be, if you like, they would be the tutors for the whole world. Now, you know that that went south because while Israel was particularly chosen by God, Israel began to believe that they were the only nation chosen by God. And the point of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, was that as Israel lived out their covenant, they would be teaching the nations. They would be, if you like, they would be a schoolroom uh, in which the way God relates to people could be experienced. And Israel was supposed to be this guide to the nations. And unfortunately, they allowed their relationship to deteriorate or their perception of their relationship to deteriorate into favoritism. God's favor, they began to see as favoritism and thought that only Israel was loved by God. When we go farther than that into the story of the new covenant, we come to the consideration of the neighbors that there were called Jews and Gentiles. So in the Old Testament, it was Israel and the nations all around them. By the time we're in the New Testament, we have the phenomenon of the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion and the Gentile nations and Gentile religions. And in the church, we come across an interesting movement by God in which very deliberately um, to correct what had not been understood in the old covenant the Lord Jesus brought about an, a new work a new covenant in which Israel and the nations would not be being pulled apart but Israel and the nations now we would call them um, the Jews and the Gentiles are one and so we find in Galatians, the Apostle Paul, for example, says in, in Christ there's only one. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. And much of the struggle in the early church had to do with the question, well, how does a Gentile become a Christian? Do you have to become Jewish first? Or can Gentiles be part of the church? And so the neighbor relationships 
of religion in the New Testament was the relationship between Jews and Gentiles as the church became increasingly a Gentile church. And uh, from that grew the whole missionary movement and brings us up to the modern days in which we know that the church is full of neighbors. All of us are neighbors, one to the other, um, no matter where we have come from. And the, the grand view in Revelation is that people from every tribe and language and nation and people are, are all together. They're all together as proper neighbors. We want to ask questions about being neighbors ourselves because our story of neighborly relations has to be the story of Southside at Maine. How do we be neighbors to this street right outside the building? How do we be neighbors in Milton? What does it mean? to be a good neighbor. So what I'd like to do this morning is bring you back to the story that we've been with for several weeks now, the story that Jesus told, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'm going to just bring you to the Luke 10 version of that story, and I want to read it to you and have you listen and just try to observe some things as we make our way through. And again, um, the little question that I'm putting before us is what do I see before I look? What do I see before I look? Uh, here, here's the way Jesus explained how to be a neighbor or who is a neighbor. Uh, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, so there's a little clue, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? What do I see before I look? Stephen Covey wrote a book many years ago now, decades ago, uh, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He tells a story about uh, a subway, and a person was in the subway riding along, minding his own business, and a young father with his children came into the subway car. And these children were out of control. They were running up and down the subway car. They were climbing over seats. They were climbing over people. And the person who had been sitting there minding his own business finally was so exasperated, so he said something to the father about getting control of his children. To which the father replied um, quietly and in a downcast kind of demeanor and said, I'm sorry, I'm, I, you're right, they're out of control. Um, 
You see, their mother just died in the hospital, and they don't know how to handle that. Covey tells that as a way um, to talk about a paradigm, and we'll not go hard on that. But when it comes to the question, what do I see before I look? That's an illustration of a person seeing something, but it wasn't enough to see it. He needed to look. What do I see uh, is is the matter of of my impression or my worldview or um, my situation that is kind of the f- the first thought, um, the first way that I size things up. And the question, what do I see before I look, would just require of us that we look to get past just what we see. So, what do I see before I look? The right answer would be that I see the right things before I look, and that would be our goal, would be to see that our worldview, our perspective, our vista is, is the right first look, and that um, the real look just confirms it. But I think the truth is that for many of us, our first impression um, either doesn't allow us to, to look to see what we should really see, um, or we have been blinded by what we are committed to by our worldview or by how we've been raised or by how we have taught what we have believed. Uh, and so the second part of it is, is it's deficient for us. So in many matters of, of societal life, we think we know some things as we look at them. And, and part of our, our humanness is that, that our, our minds are trained that way, that we learn to kind of sort things through. And then once we've sorted them through, we have some commitments, some perspectives, and then we can understand the world after that. But if we have the wrong first sight, if, if what we see is not what is much more, which could only be discerned by looking, we'll be shallow people. And uh, the story of the Good Samaritan is, is a wonderful story that really pokes at that and, and helps us understand. So I'm going to encourage you to, to try to take the question and just apply it. You find yourself in a situation, um, maybe it's something like as dramatic you know, an incident as, as the subway interaction. The paradigm that the observer had was simply that this is a father with out-of-control children. That's what he saw. But if he had looked, and in fact, when he did look, he saw all the story that was in behind that. So what do I see when I look? Before I look, what do I, what, what do I see? Um, do I see color of skin? Do I see... Um, 
station of life in some way or other? What do I see before I look? In, how, how have I got my world sorted that actually is distorting the proper look? So the story of the Good Samaritan is one in which we're told about three people who see something, right? When they saw him. So what they saw determined everything that would happen after that. So we have two religious people and we're we're told that when they saw this beaten up person at the side of the road, um, all of a sudden they saw with a certain paradigm. They saw with a religious paradigm. They saw with a, if, if you like, a prejudiced paradigm. They saw a beaten person, maybe unrecognizable. Um, they saw someone that was unclean, some, someone that was defiled, that you, you shouldn't touch. Maybe it was a dead body even, and so it would have been ceremonially uh, inappropriate for, for them to have done anything more. So, so, so they made sure that they actually um, avoided any contact with this person. When they saw him, we're told, when the one saw him, he maybe crossed the street and walked around him, but did nothing more. The second one, when he saw him, did the same thing, passed by on the other side. Neither of them were able to see past that first look, right? They didn't get to the looking that is necessary after the seeing. But when the Samaritan came along, and and the wonderful twist of the story is who it is that comes and what he sees. Because the first two are blinded by their religion, and the third person who passes is remarkably clear-eyed in what he sees. The person who comes says Jesus is a Samaritan. And, uh, of course, you know, the lawyer didn't even want to say it was a Samaritan when he answered the final question, who do you think was the neighbor? Um, but Jesus is, is, is being really invasive in the story, and he's saying, do you understand that, that, that what he saw um, helped him look and that's about the character of the Samaritan so so my character in many ways is is um, invested in um, how I have been shaped or shaped my life my spiritual life my societal life my relational life and when the Samaritan came he saw and then what are we told when he saw this person who was lying there having been left for dead, he immediately bandaged and dressed his wounds. He put him on his donkey or beast, <clears throat> whatever it was. He brought him to an inn and took care of him, paid for his lodging, and said, I'll be back tomorrow to pay if there's anything more for, for me to pay. 
because what he saw um, was was seen with with a broader vision th- that knew it needed to go and press into the look. The Samaritan was in fact the good neighbor. So as we think about how it is we are to be good neighbors, I'm sure that it ought to bring us back to this whole matter of when we see something, what, what, what immediately impresses us as having been seen? Uh, if, for example, I see a homeless person, what am I seeing before I look? In, in Toronto, we had a, a ministry every week called Out of the Cold. And um, there were many, many people who at that point were living in, in tent cities on the, in the Don Valley, and they would come for a meal. I, I remember one character, and we would always try to sort of mix ourselves among the guests. And there was one character who was, he, he, he was really noticeable. He, he talked a lot. Um, he was very animated. And you know, I think, honestly, when I saw him for the first time, I, what I think I saw was a homeless person who probably was destitute, probably, uh, had, had probably ended up there, in my mind, because he hadn't made good choices. The truth was that this was a person who had who had been having to deal with mental illness. He he had formerly was a university professor in Ottawa, and when you engaged him <clears throat> sitting at the table, he he could run rings around you in terms of mathematics. You see. Again, the, the different, what did I see before I looked? Well, I saw what I thought was a destitute tent dweller from the parkway. What do we see when we see homeless people in Milton? And then what are we going to do next? What will the look involve if, if we get past um, and get to the point of saying, I, I might not be seeing the right thing? Just maybe asking, what is it I'm seeing and why am I seeing that? What perceptions bring me to the point of seeing that? What perceptions of skin color already are fixed in my mind that are going to complicate what I should be able to see if I'm looking at the person? What, what have I already decided? What do I decide on on the matter of gender? It, if it's a woman and I'm looking at a woman, have I already thought that a woman is like this or that? And so, you know, I would expect this to be what comes after or conversely if, it, if it's a guy. Um, what do I think about people's sexuality? If I see them and identify them or maybe label them as such and such, um, is it okay to stop there or must I see the need to go past what I see and look to to understand that, that there is personhood that has to be um, attached to, to every person that I see. Everyone is created in the image of God. So uh, is, is my f- first glance, is it a, 
a God image glance that says every human being that I see, first of all, I see a person created in God's image. Or have I got some categories that would say, well, I really don't think of them that way. What if it's a criminal? What, what if it's someone that has done time? You know, where does my process of thinking go between what I see and what I look or when I look? How much farther can I get? See, the Levite and the priest were stuck. They could not get to the look because of their preconceptions on, on the basis of how they had been formed. And, and so we see that that is a human way to be. And we ought always to ask ourselves the second question. Not just what do I see, but when I look, what is it that I'm looking at? I, I think there is a, a, a great instruction in what the Samaritan did, that when we talk about being neighbors to Milton and to wherever else we are called to be neighbors, when we come across someone in need, um, what the Samaritan did has been you know, instructive for all kinds of ministries around the world. But just see what happened. He, he, he dealt right away with the immediate need that this person had. And even today in our elders meeting, we want to talk about how are, how are we going to be neighbors. So we say we want to be these people. We want to love God and we want to love our neighbors. So how are we going to love our neighbors? The first obvious question is, what are the immediate needs that our neighbors have? The reason we have goods for nothing is that people have an immediate need for clothing. And in the city of Milton, um, it's been said that there's a population that's sort of invisible to us because we don't see what the needs are around us. And so it's important for us to ask the question, well, what are the needs of Milton? Because if there are immediate needs, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about having some uh, great evangelistic program in July. We should say, well, wait a minute. This guy is lying at the side of the road, dying. What are his immediate needs? His immediate needs were bandages and oil and wine. What are the immediate needs? And, and sometimes the immediate needs are not visible to us. They, they're not apparent to us. But it's the job of a person wanting to be a good neighbor to find out what the immediate needs are. And if we are somehow held back, if we are impeded by prejudices that have been established in our minds about us and them or those kinds of people, and those kinds of people have immediate needs. If we're not going to become priests and Levites, if we're going to be Samaritans, we're going to ignore what extenuating circumstances there have been that are the fault of the person, not the fault of the whatever it is. Um, the Samaritan was able to get past what he saw to look, and the first thing he did was bandage and dress the Jewish person's needs. Secondly, he put him on his donkey. He, he, he got him out of danger. 
And again, if, if there's a model for how it is we can be good neighbors, um, we need to address the immediate need that the person has. We need to get a person out of, dinner, out of danger. Uh, perhaps someone's in a, a home situation that is dangerous. So how, how can we remove a person from danger before we go any farther? He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He got him to a safe place. And again, what are the immediate needs that are presented to us? Uh, how can we get people out of the immediate danger of their situation? And then how can we get them to a safe place? There's a lovely little pair of words in this passage that says, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And he, he obviously stayed the night because the next day he said to the innkeeper, if I'm, I'm going to go away, I'm going to come back. If you have incurred any more expenses for him, I, w- I will pay for them there. One of the most unfortunate things that people say in churches is, you should, they should, the church should. Um, I have, I've told the story several times about my good friend Ed, who several years ago said Calvary Church at that time should start a, an out-of-the-cold program. And I agreed. And the next year he came back and said Calvary Church should start an out-of-the-cold program. I agreed. And the third year he came back and he said, I will start an out-of-the-cold program. Right? It, it, it's easy to say what they should do. But the Samaritan didn't. He didn't say they should take care of that. In essence, that's what the Levite and priest were saying. Somebody should clean that up. Somebody should deal with that. And we are wont to be those kinds of people. We can identify all kinds of needs and shoulds around, and we can say, the government should do something about that. Politicians should do something about that. Churches should do something about that. But the Samaritan was able to get past what he saw and to look at it in, in a way that his compassion could move to the front. So he took care of his immediate need. He got him out of danger. He got him to a safe place. And then he withdrew and allowed the person, presumably, to return to his life well. And that'd be kind of full circle, wouldn't it? Maybe that would be a pay-it-forward deal where someone says, thank thank you so much for for what you've done for me. What can I do to repay you? The best thing to do is say, pay it forward. Because Jesus said to the lawyer, you're right. Um, you should go and do the same thing. That would be to move the whole thing through. What do I see before I look? I've been thinking of, of doing a Bible study on the simple words Jesus saw because it, it has impressed me that Jesus was he was a, a sort of a, a full-orbed 
looker, when he saw the paradigms of his life, um, the categories of his life, always went farther than just seeing. They always went to the looking. What did he see? Well, he saw what everyone sees. But he had the ability to look, and because of that, everything was different. Let me remind you of Zacchaeus, because that's one of those places where it says Jesus saw. There was a certain man who was a notorious tax collector. When Jesus saw him, what did he do? Well, well, what are the categories? If you're a religious person, if you're a Jewish person, and you see a tax collector, here's what goes on in your mind. Here are the red lights that start flashing. This guy has sold out his own people. That's what he does professionally. He abuses his own people. He has sold out to the Romans. He works for the Romans. Like, in what world would I care about him? It says when Jesus saw him, he happened to be up on a, in a tree at the moment, and Jesus saw him, he said, Zacchaeus, can you come down here? I'm going to come to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus repented of his ways. He said, in every way I have wronged people, I will make it right. And, and righteousness came to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus saw him and he looked at him. Another time the phrase is used is where we're told Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. The disciples saw the multitudes and said, where in the world are we going to get food for these people? Right? Because their first experience of seeing didn't have the second half. there. It, it didn't bring into account all of the the resources, the miraculous resources that Jesus would bring to the crowd. Jesus saw them and he was moved with compassion. When you don't need to make the distinction between the two, it's because you've made great headway. When you do need to differentiate between the two, it means that there's room for you to grow. Jesus was the complete um, human person, um, God-human person. And so what he saw was always accompanied by the perception of what it really was. And he could immediately transition into the look and its demands. So was the Samaritan, that kind of a person. That when he saw someone at the side of the road he didn't have a whole lot of stuff to deal with about should he or shouldn't he. he. He just knew that true religion, whether you're a Samaritan or a Jew, true religion would be to love that person. 
to love your neighbor. I think maybe in, in some ways that was what Mr. Rogers was like, right? It was to see children, to look at them with the eyes of concern and the eyes of education, um, the eyes of wholesomeness, where many children, I'm sure, uh, were fed a sense of, of esteem that came from a grown-up, a guy, taking off well, was his running, running shoes and he put on slippers, or he took off his shoes and put on running shoes. I now can't remember. It was one of the same. What do I see before I look? Um, the song we're going to end with is a song that talks about seeing with his eyes. And it, it's, it's really a prayer, I think, that commends itself to us to, to see and then look, but to have the eyes of Jesus. He was, you know, a full vision person who saw what it was and was able to move his enormous compassion and love and mercy to love his neighbor. So what does it mean to love our neighbors? Well, it means to be like the Good Samaritan. Right here, I shouldn't be rocket science because if there aren't needs on this street, if there aren't needs around you at work or on your street or um, in the house next door, I'd be surprised. And if there are, just make sure that you get off the blinders that have been put on your eyes by the prejudice of years past and experiences past. Our goal is to see with, with his eyes.